Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of our highlight conversations recorded live for our 2023 festival, which explored our theme, Atita Wartamana Anagata, Past, Present, Future. And if you enjoy this session, please consider making a donation to the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. As a not-for-profit organisation, we depend on your generous support to help us survive. To learn more about how to contribute, visit ubudwritersfestival.com forward slash support dash us. In the meantime, settle in and let the magic of our 20th anniversary festival continue. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I hope you've either had lunch and are not too full and sleepy or are not too hungry waiting for lunch. Uh, it's, it's not the greatest slot to be on stage for, but we will do our best to entertain you. To keep it cool. And keep it cool, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I'm very honoured to be moderating this session with Gitanjali Shri who, of course, you all know, was the winner of the International Booker Prize. Um, and we will be hearing shortly from her about her book uh, and about her writing generally. So it's great to be here with you this afternoon. You. Um, I know that we've talked off stage about the great honor uh, of winning this uh, International Booker Prize, but also the the uh, grueling travel schedule that goes with it. I, I think those of us who've never won an International Booker Prize probably are not so aware of the implications, uh, the enormous amount of travel, uh, different countries, different time zones, different people. Uh, and so um, we're, we're doubly privileged that she's been able to accommodate the Ubud Writers Festival in her busy schedule. So, um, I've read quite a lot about you, Gitanjali, and uh, I know that way back in the day, you, you were a, a, a history teacher, uh, but you left that behind, and that from a very early age, uh, you loved storytelling. I read an anecdote whether where your mother said that rather where most young children like to be told stories, Gitanjali used to like telling the stories. <laughs> so it was in her genes, in her blood from a very early age. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about your how you got into writing and f at what stage you really became conscious of that desire to to write. Yeah. Well, I ha you know I've been asked that kind of question several times and it's made me think back and try and understand what happened in my life. So a lot of it is uh, probably fiction writing already. So I'm making it up, <laughs> the story. But uh, yes, I'm told that rather than uh, be told stories, I used to enjoy telling them. Now where that came from, whether it is the genes as you said, whether it's just part of this very uh, oral culture that I come from, where we were growing up on these, uh, you know, wonderful um, storytelling uh, festivals. So I don't know what it was, but yes, I did enjoy as a child, you know, uh, bedtime, I wanted my mother to hear the story rather than her tell me the story and make me sleep. So that was there. And again, it is a bit strange, but yes, for some reason I thought I was a writer. And, you know, growing up in an ex-colonial country meant that I was sent to what are called convent schools in India. So I was sent there and I was reading, um, you know, Enid Blyton and uh, uh, Louisa May Alcott, you know, sort of writers like that. And uh, I, I decided that I, I'm a writer and I wrote stories at that point, which I think were very inspired by these children's books in English that I was reading. Uh, 
Do you still have them? No, that's the that's the <laughs> pity. pity. I, I didn't have the vanity to keep them, but today I'm very curious to know what I might have written. But anyway, I don't I don't have them. So I grew up, you know, just believing that I'm a writer, and uh, it was such an odd belief because I was doing nothing in the way of writing. I was too busy with other struggles in life about how to become independent, to have a career which will keep me. Uh, you know, which will free me from a lot of societal expectations, and you know, there were completely different um, struggles that I was handling. So that I'm a writer was a conviction which stayed with me, but my struggle was about everything else, and that is where I started doing um, history, mm. because history was considered a very useful subject uh, for the civil service exam which is supposed to be the best career you can have till the multinational stepped in you know that was the career to have in india so so were you a civil servant at one point my father was and uh, if anybody asked me what i was planning to do in life before i could answer my father would say she's planning to sit in the civil service exam so <laughs> so he was very clear about it but i never did and uh, so i always say i did history in my last birth you know uh, um i don't think i mean i think it was useful i'm sure it gave me a grounding and um sense of you know the society i came from and what all has been happening with us and around us so it's certainly been educative but i don't think i felt in my element as a student of history i think i f- i was very cautious and I needed to be freer, take risks, and that is why I needed to get into fiction writing. And really, it was in my late twenties when uh, I was um, either I had just submitted my doctoral dissertation in history. I even went on, uh, went on to do a doctoral dissertation. Either I had just submitted it, or I was returning from what they call a viva, mm-hmm. um, and I was in the train. and i don't know where i got this thought from that i call myself a writer and what have i written and that really you know sent me in a sort of state of instant panic <laughs> and i was with uh, my now my husband at that time you know just somebody i was going out with so he was with me and i said to him i i, I took out this pen and paper and i wrote a story in the train some hours her first draft and i showed it to him and both he and i were very surprised that it was a story good again i didn't keep it so um, i can't you know show how ridiculous it might have been but it <laughs> sounded like a story and a complete story and we were both surprised and that did it and thereafter i just wrote Let's talk a little bit about the work that has won you the international booker uh the tomb tomb of sand. Uh can I just see uh from the audience has anybody in the audience read Tomb of Sand? <laughs> There we are. A few. But I th- I think it would then be useful if you could give us just a brief idea of what the book's all about. if only i knew <laughs> <laughs> no but you know it's not the kind of book where i think uh, my books are rarely you know sort of a clear plot um uh, line of um storytelling so and this one least of all so it's really about um, it's got a completely different um, format in the sense that it has uh, there is a central sort of line a central flow if you will but there are lots of other streams flowing into it so there are lots of stories flowing into one possibly main story and i think it represents a whole world that belongs to me and my imagination so a whole world which is united where the animate and the inanimate and everything is sort of uh, alive everything is witness to what's going on everything is putting the story together or touching the story and leaving it so there's a lot of play of that kind going on and it talks about that um, i would say polyphonic world that very pluralistic world which is mine in this way 
the central plot, uh, uh, if you insist, is just about an elderly woman. I'm often asked why an 80-year-old woman, why is that the main protagonist? And my answer uh, is that, of course, I mean, one could always have different protagonists, but uh, what's wrong with an 80-year-old woman? You know, she's sort of uh, someone who's um, carrying so many, so much experience, so much past, so, so much of wisdom, so much of unfulfilled uh, lives within her. So she becomes a very, very rich protagonist mm -hmm. for me. And so it's about, she's the main character and uh, the novel starts with her uh, lying in bed. She's just recently lost her husband and it looks like she's also ready to die now. She has no interest left in life. And the family, it's set in the Indian joint family, North Indian joint family. So the family is very, you know, upset that the mother and grandmother is always just lying in bed and not getting up. And they're constantly trying to coax her to get out and enjoy life. And she just uh, seems to be very, very tired and exasperated of them. And she turns her back and she pushes herself towards the wall as if, you know, to get into the wall and just bury herself alive and be done with everything. So this image is what set me off. And, uh, and I start, uh, for some time it was the image of a woman who's ready to die. But then something else began to stir in me or in her. And it, it, uh, there was this curiosity now, whether this woman is ready to die, whether she's turning her back to life or turning her back to the immediate family behind her, the people behind her. And whether she's pushing herself into the wall because she's sick and tired of life and wants to end it all, or whether she's boring a hole through the wall to come out on the other side and reinvent herself. So that is the way the story started, you know, going. And uh, as somebody, you know, a great uh, sarod, you know, it's one of the musical instruments like the sitar, so, a Sarod maestro in uh, India, uh, Ustad um, Ali Akbar Khan, he says that when I start, I play the Sarod and after some time the Sarod plays me. So basically, when I started, it was this image I was trying to unpack. And after some time, this image took over and then I was just following her and she was doing things. And one of the things which somehow she started off doing was to consider no wall, a wall to shut her out, consider no border, a border to just close her in. So there she was pushing borders, pushing walls, trying to get to the other side, jumping to the other side. And here she was, me, following her and trying to jump across along with her. And that's how the story proceeded and the novel came into being. Mm. Uh, there's another sort of slightly minor protagonist, but also pretty important, who's the, the daughter. Uh -huh. Tell us a little bit about the daughter figure and the sort of interplay between the two characters. Well, the, you know, the mother-daughter relationship, I think, is um, an important relationship, perhaps, anywhere and everywhere. And uh, she seems to me to be quite a vulnerable character because uh, she's... She struggled for a certain different life from what has been given to her by a patriarchal society. So here she is with her very independent ideas and spirit. And uh, she, but she has to deal with a society which is still caught in certain old sort of uh, patterns and conditioning. And it's that negotiation which uh, takes her forward and often she finds herself failing. So she, uh, with her mother, you know, she thinks that she's actually going to take charge of her mother, of her old mother, and, you know, give her some of the freedom and the fun which she perhaps did not manage earlier because she was trapped in the household. So the daughter thinks she's in charge and slowly realizes that she's in fact the extra. <laughs> and the mother is the one who sort of really taken a hold of her own life and she knows what she wants to do and she's breaking so-called rules left, right and centre without even thinking they are rules. 
not even, you know, no thought about feminism and, uh, you know, some other radical ideology. She's just doing it in a very, very simple, spontaneous way. And daughter's almost sort of aghast at the way the mother is just um, breaking all boundaries and uh, is not the least bit in her control. So, the relationship of mother and daughter, you know, the equation seems to change and daughter is mother and mother is daughter and the mother is sort of like growing up and rediscovering her body, which is ironical because she's an 80-year-old woman rediscovering her body like a 16-year-old girl. Is, um, there's lots of humor in that and lots of irony and lots of tragedy also, if you will. Because it's not about, uh, you know, a budding, beautiful, uh, young body, you know, coming into shape. It's rather about warts and, you know, sort of loose flesh and, uh, you know, all, all things that old age brings with it. But she's, uh, you know, delighting in that, obsessing with that. She's sort of rubbing garlic in various places because that's a native uh, <laughs> remedy for getting rid of marks, warts and this and that. So, so it's really good fun, but the daughter whose mother and watching as if the daughter growing up is getting very alarmed at the way the daughter is going and becoming freer and freer. So it's an interesting relationship where the equation changes, you know, and everything turns upside down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, reflect a little on the, the style of your writing. Um, I, I, of course, have read the book myself and uh, read it all the way through and then dipped into it again. And I love the book. Um, it, it, it has an incredible resonance, uh, which goes on echoing way after you've read it. But I didn't find it an easy book to read. No. It, it, it's not straightforward, and it's been criticized by the, by the critics and in, in various reviews. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the style and how you describe it? Well, I'm going to ramble. First of all, uh, about it being a difficult book and not an easy book. I mean, that is said to me many, many times by uh, the readers who have cared for it and the readers who don't care for it. So both have said to me it's a difficult book. Not an easy read. You can't just pick it up at the airport, you know, read it and then leave it at, uh, at the, in the lounge and for somebody else to pick up. But, but I often sort of wonder, why are we looking for an easy book? Uh, look at the, some of the great, I mean, I, 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 I will not dare to put myself uh, alongside them, but look at some of the greatest works in uh, literature. I mean, are they easy? You have to delve into them, you have to go slow with them, you have to perhaps leave certain bits and return to them later. And every time you go back, you have to discover much more. You have to sort of unravel so much more every single time that you go back. So why, what's the problem if it's a difficult book? As long as the, the, it's yielding something rich for you, which I think it does when people have the patience, readers have the patience to read it. Um, I think in today, it reflects also a little um, on today's world where everyone's in a bit of a hurry and they want to know everything before they've begun or they want to see what they've already seen or they, you know, they, they, they sort of, oh, Indian family, a book about the Indian family, they want to get into it immediately knowing certain things. Why don't you want to get, get into uncharted territories and, you know, make a little bit of an effort and see where it takes you? It might be somewhere very um, uh, fantastic. Uh, the other thing I would say is, you know, so, uh, again, a point that has been uh, made to me, sometimes in appreciation, sometimes in um, criticism. Interestingly, you know, the same point is made both in appreciation by some and in criticism by some. So a lot of them say, you know, nothing seems to happen for the first, I don't know, two, uh, half of the book or more, or, uh, nothing seems to happen and suddenly it takes off and many things begin to happen. And I thought about that. I think the writer just has to wait for the rhythm to take its own course. It's like a piece of music. So you cannot force it, you know, and you cannot uh, break it into even bits. 
you know this is how much has to be this part of it and then the middle part of it and then the latter part of it and indian classical music as it happens i mean i wasn't thinking of it but i this is in retrospect that the the analogy came to me uh, indian north indian classical music is all about a long the word is alap some of you might know where nothing the the uh, the, uh, the notes which are the main notes which are going to be used in that uh, piece of music are played almost still so you feel nothing is happening it's just ah it just goes like that and it is one of the most fantastic part of that music it's called the alap long alap in which just those notes are establishing themselves and then you get on to the next part of the music where you make the melody with the notes and then you get on to what is the crescendo so this is the uh, what do you call it the structure of north indian classical music and who knows that was playing in my head when i was writing this book <laughs> another question which i'm sure you are asked over and over again you're obviously a, a fluent english speaker you were educated in english presumably and in hindi why did you choose to write in hindi rather than in english yes indeed it's a question which has been asked of me many many times and you actually ask it of me quite naturally and respectfully i'm often asked in very different tones sometimes in a tone of utter you know sort of uh, pity for me i mean why are you writing in hindi <laughs> well, who's going to read hindi what are you going to get out of that sometimes with contempt you know hindi where where's that going to take you in today's world and of course with a lot of surprise if you know english why aren't you writing in uh, in english which is the language of success in the world which is the language to be in so i would uh, give uh, several answers to that one i'm not sure i'm as fluent in english as just being able to converse makes me seem i do not think i really am i actually think our very skewed education in our ex colonial countries actually gives us a very skewed relationship with our own mother tongue as well as with the foreign language so we are not well educated in either language i mean people are surprised when i tell them i studied i told you in english medium convent okay. schools and many of those years i did what is called elementary hindi and uh, we had only one you know class of hindi everything else was in english and we were actually told that if we speak in hindi in the non hindi period we will be fined ah. okay so that was a kind of completely distorted educational upbringing a lot of us have had i think in my case i was very fortunate that my father was in the civil service and we were um, he was in one of the north indian states uttar pradesh whoever here knows about that and he was posted every 2 or 3 years to another small or big town so the result was that informally i was getting very well educated in my hindi learning hindi on many registers you know the hindi of the street hindi of uh, you know what they call um, uh, like writers meet the see also the years that i was growing up are the years immediately after india's independence so it's um, I, i'm uh, a child of the late 50s so 47 we got independence so the result was that there was it was a very ambivalent relationship with the british with the ex masters but uh, there was a sense of pride in new india even as there was a continued sense of inferi inferiority vis-a-vis the british so it was this very ambivalent situation in which i you know grew up my adolescence is in that period so the result was that there were lots of you know writers meet and you know poets um, gatherings and all that in these small towns and big towns so i'm learning hindi from these very literate and creative places as well mm. 
and I'm learning it from the street, I'm learning it from India as a country of lots of inequality, uh, so, uh, so many, so much of a hierarchy. So I'm learning Hindi at various sort of uh, levels and registers. So actually my Hindi was becoming, was much richer than the very formal English that I learned in school. And when it came to fiction writing, I did have this dilemma in my head, you know, what is a, what is the language I should be writing in. But I think quite uh, quickly and spontaneously, the language became Hindi because it was just so personal to me, whatever I was writing, that it had to be the language flowing in my blood, mm. closest to my bones, and that was Hindi rather than English. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So the book was finished and published in Hindi, mm -hmm. and um, how did it go down in India, in the Hindi-speaking population of India? Well, the book came... Um, incidentally, I mean, I'm a writer long before the booker. Sure. <laughs> sure. Okay, so this, sure. Uh, this is only... Yes. This is my, I've forgotten, fifth or sixth novel. Um, so were you uh, a well-known novelist in, in within, India? Within the Hindi right. language area. So uh, Hindi language area would... Um, Hindi literature and linguistics knew about the contemporary writer Gitanjali Shri. But uh, outside that, not that much, you know, and India is a country of so many languages and very rich literatures, you know, from uh, coming out of in each language. And unfortunately, um, not so much translation across each other's language, language as there might be from those languages into English. So English was the pool through which some of the other languages got, uh, we could access, but we couldn't directly, you know, read each other in... Uh, I mean, I couldn't read another uh, writer from another uh, language region in India in uh, Hindi. I could read the person in English, which was again, I mean, I think a skewed situation. So I was very much in that situation with my writing. And uh, with this book, um, it came out... I've forgotten, just, just the, um, two years before the pandemic. Everything is now around the pandemic. So it, it came out just two years before the pandemic. And uh, it, uh, it is a big book, so um, no one was reading it in a hurry. And I got very... Uh, I had begun to get responses. There were some um, writers who I really admire, one writer who I've dedicated the book to, who died after it came out. Um, not because of that, it sounds I hope like... Not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The effort yeah. of reading your book. No. But she was, she was uh, in her 90s and uh, she was sort of... Um, she knew about the book, she read it, she did the first review of the book, a, a doyen of uh, Hindi literature. And uh, so there were r writers of that kind who absolutely loved the book. And there were many writers who, and readers who had already started saying, oh, it's too big, uh, we can't read it, or we, can't, we couldn't get beyond the first few pages. So all that had begun to happen. And then uh, somebody from... Uh, so within the Hindi world, it was this mixed response I was getting. And then somebody from England wrote to me, um, saying that we've been following your... Um, literature for some time and we hear you have this new book if somebody if nobody has taken it we would like to publish it here and i thought nobody else has asked me so why not <laughs> so i said yes and i said but i have no translator um, uh, in mind so they said no we'll look for a translator and you see if the two of you can get along so the next thing we knew the book was being translated and the year the pandemic started the book had come out in French. The two translations took place sim simultaneously. Ah. The book had come out in French, which went into a kind of pandemic oblivion, unfortunately. And uh, in English, it came out the year um, the pandemic was petering out. Mm. So the timing was perfect. So uh, the book came out and it was sent to the booker by the publisher and it got onto the long list. And when the pandemic left us behind and the world opened up, the booker happened and the world opened up for me. Fantastic. <laughs> and, I mean, I often feel it would be wonderful to have Daisy, Daisy yes. Rockwell, the publisher here as well, because obviously 
the, the international booker is is about uh, a wonderful work of of writing which is well translated into Absolutely. English. And Daisy Rockwell, the translator, has done a wonderful job and was very highly praised by the judges for having risen to the challenge mm -hmm. of translating a novel with so much verve and wordplay. Um, and so tell us a little bit about uh, your relationship with the translator and, and your, your perception of what the... the you know, the, the translation itself. I mean, it's okay. not just a literal translation, is it? Mm. Well, first of all, let me start by showing off. Okay. So, yeah. Go on. So, Daisy now says, she says that, you know, um, after tr having translated this book, she can no longer agree to translating a simple, straightforward book. So You've spoiled her. <laughs> I've spoiled her. So, that I'm very, very pleased about. And uh, so she's looking for challenges. And when this book came out, my French translator, who knew my work already for some years, she said, you have written your most untranslatable book to date. <laughs> and then she added, she said, but what's a translator worth if she does not take up the untranslatable? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, my French translator and then Daisy proves the same, um, you know, uh, by the same token as another wonderful translator. They took on this challenge. Uh, Daisy, I, I mean, it, it's so fortuitous because I never knew Daisy. So the publisher uh, got Daisy to send me a sample of the translation. And she did the first few pages, a rough and ready translation. But I was very impressed with the fact that here's this crooked book and here's somebody sitting somewhere across the oceans and she seems to have got into it. So I said, yes, I think we can work together. And I didn't even know at that point where Daisy lived. I just thought because the publisher had, uh, you know, contacted me from uh, London, the uh, translator is somewhere there. It turns out that she was in Vermont in USA. So I had no idea. And we never met. We didn't even do a Zoom session together. My goodness. So we, uh, we didn't even do a phone call together. We only did emails after emails, excruciatingly long emails, which uh, would make a book several times that size. And uh, it was the kind of questions that she was asking, the kind of things she was interested in, in the nuances of the language, in the um, you know, sort of completely idiosyncratic play of, um, you know, thoughts and uh, words and sounds that was going on. It was that which kept uh, making ours a relationship of growing trust and rapport. So, it just kept growing. And I knew that after some time, Daisy really started enjoying the play in there and she started doing her own parallel play. So for instance, uh, in the crow section, you know, where we are inventing lots of words, the Hindi word for crow is kawa. And uh, so my, the, the words I've invented are something to do with kawa something. And she did parallel but different things with crow. Mm. And you know, she made it as entertaining as the Hindi, surely. So I knew that this was working very well and we were enjoying themselves. Of course, neither of us knew where this madness was going to take us. <laughs> How long did it take to translate? Uh, I think a good two years. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, certainly, I mean, the, there must have been some pressure also, you know, mm. but uh, two years. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I can understand that relationship. Yeah. I've told you um, mm. informally that I, I also translate books and I have a wonderful relationship mm. with one author in particular who I've never met right. and we correspond exclusively by email and WhatsApp. But we have this amazing understanding yeah. and uh, we, we, we understand the way each other's creative processes work and it, it just, yeah. yeah. Now moving um, from the role of the translator, in, in your book one of the features that I found interesting was that you, you have a, a narrator um, who sort of pops into the story and talks for a while and then 
sort of writes her way out of it again and says, well, anyway, it's not my place to be here. I shouldn't be saying these things, so see you, and disappears again. You <laughs> yeah. sort of exit stayed right. Or, um, tell us a little bit about that device. Mm. I, I think the book um, really relishes the seemingly irrelevant and um, irrational and seemingly unnecessary as also playing a role in our lives. So this character who does not belong to the story but just happens to be in some of the places where something related to the story took place and says, you know, but I was there and I saw that, but it's not for me to talk about it, so sorry, I mean, I bow out, out and I promise I will not return. But of course, after they some time, he returns again, yeah. and you yeah. know, and he says, yeah, well, I happen to be there, but, you know, this happened, but yeah, I take your leave and I won't do it again. So there's, a, there's some play there, but I think there's also the point being made about... Um, uh, our obsession with something called relevance and meaning and, you know, what really matters. Now, what really matters? Do we know? I mean, this chance uh, encounter adds, takes the tail forward mm -hmm. and that's important. It becomes important. So it's some kind of, you know, sort of having fun with that idea that this character mm -hmm. <laughs> began to appear and disappear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the, the, the use you make of humor in general yeah. um, is, um, is, is one of its really makes the, the whole work much more accessible. And you comment on all sorts of social issues such as corruption um, and mm. uh, the status of government employment, which you talked about yeah, earlier, yeah, yeah. nepotistic practices around securing such positions, the role of foreigners. <laughs> the role of the white person, the um, uh, customs, habits, religious observances, family relationships, hypocrisy, all these themes are touched on with humor. humor. Uh, cynicism about doctors, you know, when she submits herself to the health service and they just run test after test after test. And haven't we all experienced that? Yeah. Uh, and in the end, you just want to run away, which she does. <laughs> Um, and so, but all these themes are very, very accessible and uh, in some ways they're very Indian, mm -hmm. but in other ways they're very universal, universal. and mm -hmm. I think that's what makes it uh, such, yeah. a, such a good yeah. read. But if, um, I mean, if you allow me, I could just sure, say uh, sure. humor, I mean, just thinking about humor. Now, first of all, of course, um, we all know that humor is the most serious thing ever. And the, uh, the very obvious example that comes to my head is Charlie Chaplin. You know, he's doing the most serious critique of the world and society and politics and fascism and everything. And he's doing it in the, with the lightest touch possible. And you're laughing away at things you are actually in life crying about. So I think that's humor is such a healthy, powerful... Um, strategy to have in life, in literature, everywhere. I also think that humor allows one, you know, to, um, to have a, sl uh, to, to, to kind of um, use a deflection and a dislocation of gait and gaze, which allows you to look at truth mm. in a much more intense way. So it's about, uh, it's about finding a way to making what everybody already knows, making it unusual. So making the usual unusual, like you mentioned, the white, the role of the white, the various other things, the class thing and this and that and the other, they're all there and we know it all. But if you do this slightly, you know, crooked angle to it, which humor allows, then immediately it kind of gets highlighted in a way it wouldn't if you just talked straight about it. Mm. So I think humor is a very, very powerful um, tool in that sense. And one enjoys that. I also think humor is very much about a love relationship. You know, irreverence in humor, in literature, in relationships. I mean, we, we make fun of each other with love. Mm -hmm. And it's an uh, expression of love. And I'm just remembering one little um, 
anecdote which a lot of you um, who know India would know that there Brindavan is a, a city in India which is a, a religious city associated with the god uh, Krishna, the one who plays the flute and who has a million girlfriends amongst the milkmaids. So he's the lover god who tells lies, who flirts with all the women, who steals butter and God knows what all. So he's a very playful, naughty god and continues to be that even when he's uh, delivering the most uh, serious sermon which is the Bhagavad Gita. Even then he talks about the place of lies, you know, in uh, you have to do, if you are caught in a certain uh, position where what looks wrong to you has to be done, you have to do it because it is your karma, it is your duty of that time without thinking of the result. And this is with regard to the war between uh, brothers. And, he, and this, uh, the main um, hero on this side, the Pandava in the Mahabharata, he's, he's saying that, you know, how can I, how can I kill my own brothers who are the enemy uh, army? And Krishna is telling him that you have to do it because this is your, this is the call of duty at this moment. So you just have to do it. So he's, so they go into that war with a lot of pain. So he's that kind of God. And I remember that we were going to Vrindavan, this city, and um, there were lots of difficulties which I will not go into. There was curfew, there was this problem, that problem, and we had to get there at a certain, uh, you know, on that particular day with great difficulty. We called up the police fellow here, we called up somebody else there, and they made some special arrangements and we managed to get there. And we go to this temple and the temple priest who is... Uh, the greatest devotee of this God, he comes to welcome us. So I joked and I said, um, Swamiji, um, it was so difficult to reach you. I mean, we had to call the police, we had to take the help of the police to get here. So he said to me, he said, he was a thief, he was born in jail, he always told lies, how else can you get to him except by taking help from the police? <laughs> so, he, so this uh, the thing is that, you know, here's a devotee, a religious devotee and a truly religious man. He's a priest and he's, this is irreverence and our present government won't take kindly to this, I'm sure. You know? so, so the thing is that there is, they don't realize that irreverence and um, humor and making fun of each other can also be a mark of great love. love. Yes. It is not about running anybody down. I mean, he's making fun of his God. Mm. So just this mm. memory I wanted to share with you. Um, I've got so many things I want to talk to you about. So I think we need... Can we have an extension of an extra hour, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, let's just talk for a little bit about um, one of the areas that you uh, talk a lot about in your book is, is women and feminism and you uh, address all these themes with, with this humor that we've just been talking about. Um, I think you, you talk a lot about the invisibility of women, uh, about, as you mentioned in your synopsis of the, the story, if you can call it that, about women coming into their own as they, as they grow older uh, and how Things are changing for women, but it's still not, not easy. Can you talk just a little bit about, about that theme? Well, that's a, too huge a subject for me to be at all confident about covering in a short while. In two minutes. Yeah, well, in <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> so I think uh, the most important things will get left out, so bear with me. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's easy for women anyway. And I don't think uh, even those societies which think they have resolved it had, have actually resolved it. I think patriarchy and its norms are working uh, in some places more brazenly than others. Therefore, you feel the oppression that much more. And in some places, um, they seem to be well sort of hidden behind a more sophisticated exterior. So I think that is, we, we should all be quite alert and aware about that. 
having said that, I think uh, we also have a lot of stereotypes about uh, feminism and about the feminist woman and about where the movement of assertion and strength and so on is taking place. And it's very much where it is um, confrontationist and in one's face that we recognize it. While I think my whole um, stress and I hope my sensitivity is towards where it's hidden behind this whole thing of the invisible woman, you know. So the woman who looks subordinate is going by the rules of society, but what's simmering inside and how is she negotiating freedom for herself and for others. And that is why for me, the family is a very important arena mm. where all changes in society are actually playing themselves out. And that's why I think a lot of my work just focuses on, it's set in the family. In the family and yes. women who look like they are, uh, um, they the very line. much fit the bill of the uh, traditional woman. They are the ones who in different ways are struggling, asserting themselves, succeeding, failing, getting frustrated, breaking out, all kinds of things. But the stories are all there. Mm. And I think those are the stories I'm happiest following. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that was a very nice two minutes worth on, on <laughs> the topic. <laughs> Thank Maybe you. Maybe we can take it up again tomorrow in our session. Mm -hmm. um, one other theme that I wanted to touch on before we ask you just to read a, a short extract and then open up to you, the audience, for questions is on the whole concept of borders, which I think is a, a theme which is very prominent in your work, you know, challenging the rigidity of borders between genders, between countries, between family members. Um, I think very, very interesting treatment of, of the whole concept of borders. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can just say a few words about that. Again, I think it's the subject of a half an hour plus lecture. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I think borders, boundaries, divisions, <coughs> these are things, again, which um, surely mattered. Um, these are ingredients in uh, the lives of everybody, of, you know, every single human life, our daily life, our political life, and, you know, life across the countries and in every society and, you know, even here, I mean, there's a, there's a border there, you know, we, we have to be this side and you have to be that side. And not every border or every boundary is necessarily a hostile one. But we are always dealing with that, you know, I mean, we are supposed to be here, we are not supposed to be jumping across and you're not supposed to be jumping this side. And I think we've grown with that and uh, somewhere without me deliberately uh, thinking about these things, all these different kinds of borders kept coming up. And like I said, the main protagonist, for whatever reason, started pushing and questioning so many borders. I mean, I think, uh, I think we're all doing that. I mean, look at the world today. I mean, we, the world has opened up. We are all, in some sense, accessible to everybody else. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, was, it is as if the borders have uh, collapsed. But no, you know, new borders, new suspicions, new divisions have been erected. So we're always dealing with this. And it was just something very live and very organic, which was going along um, in the dynamism of the, you know, uh, tale and its development. And this woman, you know, she just started uh, um, questioning all unfriendly boundaries or all uh, uh, accepted and expected boundaries and either breaking them or pushing them or wanting to go across. And once that became the, um, in a way, what do you call it, the, the main theme of her life at that point, everywhere suddenly boundaries uh, could be seen, you know, whether it was age, then this old woman refusing to be old, she's young and she sort of relates to herself like a young girl or uh, the boundary of, uh, you know, what, what, con what uh, constructs a man and what constructs a woman, what, what is that? That also suddenly, you know, came into question and um, transgender, third gender walked into the book. 
So none of it was, de you know, planned deliberately. But everything with any rigid, fixed borders started, you know, collapsing. And the figure of the third gender then became uh, a very curious new adventure. Sure. You know, where does this body go? I mean, which way does it flow? I mean, woman, man, both, what? You know, and it's another kind of rich uh, person that we are dealing with. And of course, the location is India. So inevitably, it reached the India-Pakistan border sure. and brought in all the politics and the hateful history and past and violent history of that um, partition. So that is how it became very much a novel about borders, borders. and boundaries. Yes. Yeah. yes. Thank you very much. There's so much more to discuss, as I said, but um, I think as we're uh, fast approaching question time, um, could you just read oh, us okay. an extract from your book? I hope your appetites have been duly whetted. It is a splendid book, uh, um, and uh, just read us a, a short piece before we open the floor I hope you're not too to tired to off, off my voice and the book. So I'm just going to read the beginning, okay? It's short, so I'll just read that out, okay? <clears throat> a tale tells itself. It can be complete but also incomplete, the way all tales are. This particular tale has a border and women who come and go as they please. Once you've got women in a border, a story can write itself. Even women on their, on their own are enough. Women are stories in themselves, full of stirrings and whisperings that float on the wind that bend with each blade of grass. The setting sun gathers fragments of tales and fashions them into glowing lanterns that hang suspended from clouds. These two will join our story. The story's path unfurls, not knowing where it will stop, tacking to the right and left, twisting and turning, allowing anything and everything to join in the narration. It will emerge from within a volcano, swelling silently as the past boils forth into the present, bringing steam, embers and smoke. There are two women in this story. Besides these women, there are others who came and went, those who kept coming and going, those who always stayed but weren't as important, and those yet to be mentioned who were not women at all. For now, let us just say that two women were important, and of these, one was growing smaller and the other was growing bigger. There were two women and one death. Two women, one death. How nicely we'll get on. Us, them, once we all sit down together. Two women, one mother, one daughter. One growing smaller, the other growing bigger. One laughs and says, I'm growing smaller by the day. The other is saddened but says nothing when she sees herself growing bigger and older. The mother has stopped wearing saris now. Now that she must stuff more than half the fabric into her waist and raise the hems of her petticoats a little higher each day. Does gradually growing smaller make you cat-like so you may slip through tiny cracks and escape? Puncture a border and slip right through? Develop a knack for near invisibility? This must be the reason that the mother was able to slip through to the other side of the border while the daughter was still fretting over how stuck they were. It's also possible that the smaller woman truly was innocent when she refused to confess to any crime on her part, be it regarding legal permissions, debates over names, or accusations of theft. Those who did not understand her arguments considered her crazy, maybe even vicious. They suspected her of purposefully misleading. She pointed out that men always get the high-quality dal and women just get leftover mash, don't they? Hmm? She spoke fearlessly. So, so, does that make it right? But if you stare at them fearlessly, will the border guards understand? You have crossed the border, they reprimand. She chuckles. Anything worth doing transcends borders. Should I do nothing at all? No, they retort. And no one is foolish enough not to know this. Even goats and cows know where not to stray. 
and your eyesight isn't so bad you cannot see so how can you be forgiven who's asking for forgiveness she roars with laughter and the growing bigger daughter weeps and is this all there is to see perhaps i too have seen a thing or two try seeing with my eyes for once if she were to fall she did not wish for it to be face down wherever the bullet came from wherever it hit she would fall straight back and lie supine on the ground regally her eyes filled with sky let me practice she told her daughter the mother started hiccuping all the time she hiccuped and hiccuped and hiccuped if the daughter had not been in such a state she would have grown suspicious as to whether these hiccups were real or fake they won't stop with water give me a slap on the back the mother would command if the slap isn't hard enough then try a running kick boom try it on my back or in my stomach or on my sides and make sure i fall down but on my back eyes open forehead facing up then the hiccups will surely stop it was a strange remedy but the daughter did as the mother asked she kicked and kicked boom 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 and with this new game her mother kept falling over bam 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 after a bit of hullabaloo observers would also burst out laughing can you beat it this old lady is too much but the pr- mother told the daughter that she needed to be prepared anyway long story short what happened was this a bullet did come flying towards her but by then the mother had become an expert at falling backwards a bullet came punctured her body shot through and out the other side anyone else would have sprawled face down in the mud but ma flipped backwards like she was doing a somersault she lay back on the ground in an attitude of victory elegantly face up as though she was reclining on a soft bed the sky her coverlet those who considered death to be an ending took this to be hers but those in the know knew that this was no ending knew she had simply crossed yet another border so there's no harm in starting the story right here that is the way we are doing it right now thank you <laughs> lovely thank you very much indeed thank you so we have just under 10 minutes for questions anybody like to kick off with a question the lady in the second row is there a microphone hello so uh, my question please if you feel free to comfortable to answer it but there's a lot of reference of your closeness to your mother in the reviews so i'm a mother you're a mother i'm just curious of how much of her has influenced this writing um it's not based on any single person's biography but it is about mothers it is about uh, women of a certain generation and about women who are like i already mentioned you know women who uh, have a certain sort of exterior and seem to fit a certain stereotypical um, notion but behind that have their own you know ways of um, asserting themselves so my mother certainly uh, would be one but uh, the person who's uh, i've dedicated the book to the writer krishna sopti who's one of our you know sort of um, hindi greats you know grand dam of hindi literature she would be another such woman you know who actually as it happened came from what has become pakistan and uh, she said to me once uh, i remember she in ladakh which is you know bordering the two countries and she said that uh, i can't remember a helicopter or a small plane she just saw it uh, flying across and she said her first thought was uh, from the other side and then she thought but that's also my side so i think there are there are any number of women actually who would uh, who one could sort of remember and say that they have gone to the, into inspiring me and becoming this one character thank okay. you thank you Uh, the the gentleman in the front row 
Hi, good afternoon. Hello. Uh, Gitanjali Shri, thanks, thanks for uh, the tale and the whole thing. Thank and you. congratulations for winning that, the Booker Prize. Thank you. Uh, I don't know, it's, I haven't read yet the, your book, but certainly it's there in my reading list, right? Uh, I wanted to, it's, it's up to you to answer, like, so the India is, a new India is changing India. And uh, you have written your, your whole book in Hindi, right? My question to you that how much political system or national system or India itself is supporting uh, Hindi as a language where the whole India is moving towards uh, growing India of IT, English. So what do you think that how much that, that Hindi writer will be supported by changing new India and new political system? Um, I have been asked um, similar sort of questions about the establishment and me and Hindi writing and I have usually said go and ask them but I won't say that to you only I let you know that the present dispensation doesn't seem to know that there's anything called the International Booker they never seem to have heard that somebody who wrote in, who writes in Hindi has got that international award for the first time and that there could be something there for them. So many people say to me, that's an award in itself that they have not recognized you. Mm -hmm. Nice answer, thank you. I think we have time for one further question. Anybody like to ask anything? No more questions? Okay, well I think we're more or less out of time. Um, thank you once again, Gitanjali. Thank you, Jill. It was lovely um, talking to you. It was a very interesting, stimulating discussion.